So, Srimad Bhagavatam translation and purports by Srila Prabhupada. So, uh, before we chant this, perhaps I'll explain a little bit what the words mean so you know what you're chanting, hopefully. Uh, ED means thus, and so it obviously refers to the previous verse. So in the previous verse it said, first of all, this bore was no bigger than the tip of a thumb. And within a moment he was as large as a stone. My mind is perturbed. Is he the supreme personality of God and Vishnu? So uh, that's Brahma. Those are Brahma's thoughts. Iti in Sanskrit is the uh, quotation mark, actually. That's how they put in direct quotations in Sanskrit. The direct quotation is followed by the word iti, which means what just came before is what someone actually said or what someone actually thought. So iti here refers to Brahma's thoughts in the previous verse. And mimangsataha, mimangsataha, uh, man in Sanskrit means to think, like the word manas. And uh, so mimangsataha is a particular verbal form. This is actually a participle anyway, too much in the grammar. But it mimangsata is, is a verbal form called the intensive, intensivo. And it, um, it means he was thinking very intensely. He was really trying to figure this out. So that's what this particular form of the verb means. The Brahma is thinking like really intensely what's going on. So iti mangsatas tasya brahmana. So that means that while Brahma, as Brahma was, he was intensely thinking, Saha Sunu vi. Saha means together along with his sons, Sunu. Along with his sons, he was thinking very intensely. So just as he was thinking in that way, Bhagavan, Yagya Purusho, the Lord, the personified sacrifice, Jagarja, roared or resounded, uh, Aga Indra, Aga, in Sanskrit simply means a no-go, because ga in Sanskrit means to go. And so, and so you have these words for mountains like naga, a no-go, because they don't move. Or, or here, aga, not going. So aga is sort of a humorous word for mountain, and, and you know, a no-go. And so, and Indra, Indra uh, means the, uh, chief or lord or most important so just like indra in a sense is a title it means that he's the head of the demigods therefore he's called indra so here it's aga indra agendra which means the lord of mountains and saniva simply means resembling Prabhupada translates as like so uh, saniva it's very interesting sanskrit ba is actually a word which means uh, vision or light or image. And so saniba means like having the same image or being like something, being similar to something. So, Namo Vishnu Padaya Krishna Pristaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swaman Itinamine Namaste Sarasate Deve Gauravani Pracharine Nirvishesha Shunyavari Paschatyade Shatarine So Prabhupada, here in his purport, uh, and this is not unusual for Prabhupada, uh, focuses on 
the aspect of this verse which, which uh, contradicts what people normally think about the natural world, namely a roaring mountain. And of course, the reason that uh, most people don't think mountains roar is because they've never heard one roar, which is, in a sense, a reason, of, a good reason not to, not to assume the mountains roar. So, Prabhupada, so as far as mountains being alive, um, there's one reference about, uh, I think somewhere in the Bhagavatam where some mountains were getting a little misbehaved or something, were, and so their wings were cut off so they couldn't fly anymore. Other than that, we don't really have in Krishna Leela or in the Bhagavatam examples of mountains that are living entities. So it's not, it's not something that's like an everyday occurrence that uh, someone just has a conversation with a mountain or a mountain um, in other ways acts like it's alive or conscious. Although one thing we know geologically, I, I say this because it, it, it's not simply that people are morons because they don't think that mountains fly or, or speak. It's, it's sort of a natural conclusion given the way the world is. And so then, one thing geologically, geologically, um, mountains do grow. Oh, bless you. Can't believe you sneeze. Anyway, just kidding. So, um, mountains do exhibit the symptoms, you could say, of living beings, or indeed of all material things, or not all, but most, in the sense that geologically mountains are, so to speak, born. It can be by some seismic event or volcano, or, um, or uh, it can be by river changing its course and starting to pile up silt or whatever. But mountains are, according to geology, mountains do take birth at a certain point, not in the sense that you know, a little mountain pops out of a big mountain and the big mountain spanks it and it cries. And I mean, not like a normal human birth, but um, mountains do, so to speak, take birth and then they grow and they reach a certain uh, height, so to speak, and then they gradually diminish and they can vanish. For example, in the United States, uh, one mountain range, the Appalachian Mountains, which run basically from northern Georgia, uh, the north part of Georgia, northeast, up into Canada. I hope that's not too much information. And then, and so those mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, are considered to be a very old mountain range. They're actually kind of, uh, you know, geriatric. Sort of an older mountain range. It's uh, retired. And... Um, on the other hand, the Rocky Mountains uh, are way over in the west are considered to be a young mountain range. It's still growing, and uh, maybe become a maybe become so high it'll become like a basketball mountain range. Anyway, just kidding. So, but mountain ranges do have ages. They do grow. They do diminish, and so on and so forth. And there are you know, sounds in the mountains. I'm not trying to say that the idea of mountains living is just symbolic because uh, 
That's obviously not what Prabhupada means here still. Um, so is the statement that mountains are alive, is it literal? Uh, Prabhupada takes it that way. So, um, and this raises actually a larger question. This raises a larger question, which is, uh, how, how should a reasonable devotee, or how should reasonable people in general, I mean, we're devotees, so we are committed to following the parampara, the great acharyas and shastra. What about people in general? How should they think about these things? Since you can't really, let's say, you're trying to convince someone about Krishna consciousness, you can't really take them to a mountain and say, go ahead, ask the mountain a question. Or, so, so in other words, we're asking people in general to take things on faith, to take things on faith, to take on faith something which uh, they may not ever experience in this life. So this is actually a different, you could say, epistemological category. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that basically tries to explain how do you know you know. In other words, under what conditions is, is it reasonable or, to use a popular word in philosophy, justified, under what conditions is it justified to say that you know something? And under what circumstances is it that you just believe something? You simply have an opinion about something. Uh, so what are the necessary conditions for you to say that you don't merely believe you actually know something? That's called epistemology. So uh, in the case of Krishna, for example, we make claims about Krishna, that there is a God, and uh, he has many names, but a really blissful name of God is Krishna, and you can realize Krishna by chanting his holy name, serving him, practicing bhakti yoga. Now that, in a sense, is a much more scientific claim than a living mountain or a mountain that has a voice. Because when we chant Hare Krishna, we can actually experience Krishna. And in fact, the reason I, you know, we're here, I hope, right now, because we could be other places, but we're here in a Hare Krishna temple. I hope, I hope no one, I hope everyone knows you're in a Hare Krishna temple. Actually, a very funny thing happened when um, when I was a brahmachari. Oops, I better take my flowers off. Oops, okay, not good. When I was a brahmachari, and Prabhupada sent me to Boston in 1970 to work on his books because the Iskon Press was there, and uh, there was one. And usually spaced out young gentlemen. I mean, a lot of young people were very spaced out in those days for various reasons. But this one was uh, remarkably spaced out. And so he joined the temple. And then literally after about a week or two, he came to me and said, uh, this is the Guru Maharaji ashram, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, no, actually it's a Hare Krishna temple. And so, oh my God. So he, he actually came to the wrong address. <laughs> but it took him two weeks to figure that out. <laughs> Those were very interesting days back then. So, anyway, um, so we can realize Krishna. We do realize Krishna. We do experience Krishna by chanting, by serving, 
And so Krishna is something which we not only experience, but we experience at the deepest level of knowledge. Uh, whereas if you chant Hare Krishna, you may or may not experience a roaring mountain. So in a sense, interestingly, although the claim that Krishna is God is a much more ambitious claim, it involves much, a much bigger truth, it's actually much more, it's more scientific, just in a methodological sense, because you can actually experience Krishna. So, um, so then, uh, so what, of course, then there's the, the point that even in Western philosophy, oh, is that, that scissor thing is kind of noisy. So maybe we'll just uh, suspend that. Thank you. No harm, no foul. So, um, So we're asking people to take something on faith, and yet we claim this is a spiritual science. I mean, we claim that all the time. I know I do. So the essence of science is that um, seeing is believing. And uh, you have to demonstrate something. And so uh, this is a spiritual science because as far as the the fact that Krishna is God or Krishna is in our heart or Krishna is non-different from his holy name or that we can realize Krishna by serving him. Those are all scientific claims because by doing so, we actually experience those things. So what about other statements like this where Prabhupada says that there are, you know, there was a movie called The Mouse That Roared before your time, right? No one here knows it. Oh God. You're all handicapped by youth. So, Actually, it's a very funny movie. It was about, there was this Central American country, which was very poor. All, they almost all are. And so it was a very poor country. And they realized that the, that the best hope they had to get a lot of money to the United States was to lose a war to them. Because when countries lose wars to America, then America gives them a lot of money to rebuild. So they decided they had to declare war. This little tiny country had to declare war in the United States. And of course they would lose. But by this impossible series of coincidences and events, they actually won the war. <laughs> and so, anyway, it was a comedy movie back in the 60s called The Mouse That Roared. I mentioned that because here we have the mountain that roared. So, so what is the status epistemologically in terms of philosophy of a claim which comes from an accepted authority, but the claim cannot be directly experienced? Is that still a spiritual science? Which I think is an interesting question to challenge ourselves. So um, anyway, that's all I had to say today. Just kidding. <laughs> so if we, if, we go more, if we go more into epistemology, then um, even in Western philosophy, uh, which of course is not very flattering, even in Western philosophy, they have some common sense. Uh, hearing from authority, which we call Shruti, uh, is a source of knowledge. For example, let's say if you're a scientist, um, science now is extremely specialized and it's simply humanly impossible for anyone to completely master every detailed, every branch of science 
And yet, all these different branches of science are often interrelated. So that if you're trying, for example, to understand where the universe comes from, uh, it will involve many branches of science, such as astronomy, uh, cosmology, cosmogony. It will involve, for example, uh, the scientific study of light, optic, optics, because astronomers now make their calculations by measuring and analyzing light, because that's all the information we get. It's not that we don't get uh, audio messages from distant parts of the universe. They don't like talk to us, but we do get light. That's how we know things are there, distant objects. And so you analyze that light and you try to, you know, based on the standard theory of the speed of light, you try to understand how far away it is, a certain object, and also uh, by when light passes through different atmospheres containing different kinds of gas or radiation, the light gets affected in different ways. You study the light and try to figure out what that light passed through on its way to Earth and what part of that effect actually was at the source of the light and therefore tells us something about the object which emitted the light and what part of it tells us about what happened on the way there or on the way to earth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to know all about that. Plus you've got to know mathematics. Plus you have to know all kinds of other things. And so because very few people or hardly anyone can be an absolute master of every branch of science, people actually believe what other people say. So for example, they read scientific papers. Now here's the dirty little secret. It's actually not a secret anymore. Everyone knows it's science. That studies have shown that papers published in science journals, like professional academic journals, 50% of them uh, have problems. Either you can't duplicate the experiments or they just cheated. There's actually an epidemic of cheating in science for obvious reasons that uh, there are tens of, if not hundreds of billions of dollars which are being given out for scientific research. And so will scientists cheat to make a lot of money? A lot of them will, we now know. But in any case, apart from that serious problem actually of, of cheating or just cheating or simply rushing to conclusions so that your conclusions cannot be duplicated. Uh, so, but apart from all that, even in the field of science, uh, people have to accept statements on faith. Like for example, I accepted on faith that there is a country called New Zealand. I had no direct experience of that because I'd never been here before. And, uh, but I believed it because I heard it from authorities like people that make maps and devotees that had been to New Zealand and the news and so on, the fake news. So, and I heard that there, that, that, that there was a big city in New Zealand called Auckland. There was actually, and this is very scary, there was a Hare Krishna movement there. And so I acted on faith and bought a plane ticket. So in the real world, in the real world, at, I mean, constantly we accept things on authority. 
For example, you board a commercial jet, the flight takes off, your life is in the hands of the pilot. But you have faith in all kinds of things. You believe that the pilot is not suicidal, which most of the time is true. If you know what happened to that horrific case, you know the case of German wings at German airline, where there was a co-pilot who was actually crazy and wasn't given proper psychological testing. And when the pilot went to the bathroom, the co-pilot locked the door of the cockpit and then just flew the plane into a mountain. I mean, it was horrible, horrific. So when you, I know you'll never fly again. So you have to believe, for example, that, that the hundreds of people that service the airplane at every stop, that put the fuel in, that check to make sure that, you know, there's no problem, there are no problems because commercial jets are very complicated machines. And, uh, and there's hundreds of people that have to check thousands of different things and you're believing in all those people. So if you think about it, human life as we know it would be impossible unless we are constantly accepting information from authorities. There could be no human life. We could all maybe go back to the caves. Even then, you'd have to, you know, if you go to hunt a, some big animal with your club or something and spear, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to have faith that your co-hunter doesn't throw the spear in you. And, and, and so the, the simple fact is that human beings are social creatures. You cannot acquire language. You cannot speak a human language unless you are socialized. In fact, learning a language is one of the main processes of socialization by which you are transformed from kind of a, uh, a completely bestial creature into a human being. Oh, and it works in many cases, not all. So in other words, you could not be anything like a human being. You could not think, you could not speak, you couldn't, feed, you could hardly feed yourself. You couldn't do anything because you have to learn how to feed yourself from other people. In other words, you couldn't live. You, there, there, there is no such thing as human life without socialization, without becoming part of a society. And therefore, uh, in order to be part of a society, which we all are, you have to believe many things that people tell you. When you're driving your car and you see a green light, you go at a lethal speed and you assume that people coming the other way are uh, going to stop at, their, at the red light. You assume there is a red light in the other direction. You assume that no one sabotaged the traffic light, that the people who service the light. I mean, you're assuming many, many things every time you just drive your car. You assume that no one put a bomb in your car. And so it's just the nature of life. Life is impossible without accepting authority and having faith in what other people tell us or uh, believing that other people have done their duty. Other people, have, other people have honored their social contract. It's like if you buy something online. God, I can't believe I said that because I'm actually not into online shopping because it destroys brick and mortar stores and in various ways, I think, actually degrades human. Anyway, never mind all that.
let's say you go online and buy something. And so you give your, you, you, you give your credit card. You assume they're not going to steal your credit card number. You assume that they're not going to cheat you. So at every moment, at every, every, time you, every time you eat, which you do several times a day, you're Hare Krishna, maybe more than that. So, I mean, every time we eat, we assume we're not being poisoned. So, therefore, in the case of the roaring mountain, mountain that roared, <laughs> um, there is a... There's also a, another um, standard philosophy of, 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 you say, or epistemology, which is called, uh, well, I said another, I can give you the first one. So let me give you a few uh, systems of epistemology in, in contemporary philosophy. This is academic philosophy. The one which which in my view is most correct or most important and which Lord Chaitanya actually endorsed is called foundationalism. Foundationalism means in, in this context, in, in the relevant sense here, that um, in order to have any body of knowledge, whether it's science, whether it's theology, such as Krishna consciousness, um, you have to ultimately base your understanding on what to you is a self-evident fact. This is exactly the word Lord Chaitanya used in his discussion with, I think, Sarvabhoma and Prakashnanda. In, in, in Lord Chaitanya, the Chaitanya Charitamrita gives the Sanskrit Swataha Pramanya, which means that something which stands as evidence, Swataha, from itself, self-evident. It's, it, it, it functions as evidence, as proof, by itself. Self-evidence, the same word. Swata pramanyam. And so, interestingly, the word pramana, which is a word for evidence or proof in Sanskrit, literally means the measure of something. The measure of something. So, um, for example, let's say... I've been explaining these things in many places, so for some of you, this is a rerun. You may want to go out and buy some popcorn in the lobby. But um, if you are a material scientist, actually in science, material science in science means you study materials like physical things, like, like uh, plastics or metals or whatever. But in philosophy, of course, material science can mean materialism. It can mean the particular, frankly, idiotic view that nothing exists except dead matter. And that therefore, even though we're alive, we are really just, life itself is just a material thing, which actually makes no sense at all. Because 99.9% .9 of all the matter in the universe is not alive. But anyway, so and we are conscious, but then they'll say consciousness is just a material function like burping or digesting, which makes absolutely no sense. And you can hardly believe that adults could say something like that, but they do. And so, so that's what material philosophy is. But let's say you want to become a scientist. You want to study the physical world. 
to do that, you have to make an assumption that you can never prove through science. You can never, your whole program to be a scientist is based on an assumption that you can never, never scientifically prove. And that is that there's a real world outside your mind. Of course, this gets into a perennial uh, topic in philosophy. On one hand, you have, you have a philosophy which is just roughly called idealism, such as Bishop Barclay, which means that um, you can never really know about an objective world out there. All you really know is, is the contents of your own mind. So for example, let's say right now you see a mountain or you see, or you see this whiteboard here. So actually uh, you are perceiving a certain way. So the fact that you see it as white, the fact that you see, I guess those are black letters there with a the blue title stream at Bhagavatam and all that, uh, that's all just in your mind. Because scientifically, if you study all that, it's just a bunch of molecules and atoms and therefore, uh, <laughs> idealism, not in the sense of like being ideal, but in the sense of it's just an idea. You basically just have ideas, concepts in your mind, which depend upon your neurology, your nervous system, your different sense organs and so on. And so, and then of course you can go even more radical than that. By the way, I don't, what I just said, I actually, don't really believe, and I'll explain why I don't believe it. But you can become, you can get even more radical than that and say that actually, uh, maybe you're the only, what if, what if you were the only conscious person in the universe and you're just imagining everyone else? Of course, if you think about this too much, you may become qualified to get money from the government <laughs> because of being mentally impaired. I mean, it's a kind of idea that can kind of drive you crazy if you think about it too much. But, but it's, you could say it's logically possible, and, and I'll explain what I mean by logically possible and logically impossible, because I did say that you could never scientifically prove that there's a real world out there. Lo uh, to be logically possible means that the words don't contradict themselves. For example, if, uh, if I say there's a... Um, God, I feel, it's embarrassing. I keep giving the same examples I've been giving other places. Because once I get in the middle of a class, I'm just too tired to think of something else. Okay, but, but let's say, for example, someone says that there's an 800-pound rabbit. <laughs> sort of a genetic freak. Let's say someone says there's an 800-pound rabbit in this temple room. So, and, and, and visible rabbit, it's not like some subtle rabbit or some rabbit in a different dimension. It, it's actually like right here in a normal physical sense. So we can look around the room and uh, we can conclude empirically that there is no 800 pound rabbit in the room. Or if someone says, for example, there is a microphone in the room, then you can look around and confirm that there is. So that's empiricism where you use your senses to study the external world, to confirm or uh, disprove things, prove or disprove. However, let's say I claim that there is a square circle in the room. 
There's a square circle in the room. Now, you don't have to look for it. Because if you understand English, and you know what the word square means, and what the word circle means, then you know, without looking, that there is no such thing as a square circle, because the words, because the words contradict each other, and therefore the term square circle ultimately is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. It cannot mean anything because it's just logically impossible. So certain things may be proved or disproved empirically. Other things are just logically impossible. Or if I say, for example, that I see a square that has four interior angles of 90 degrees and uh, four equal sides, equal in length. Now, that statement cannot be untrue because that's what a square is. That's what the word square means. It means a geometric figure, in this case, a one-dimensional uh, figure, which has four interior right angles and four equal sides. That's what the word means. And so you could say, well, it's, I didn't, all I did is explain the definition, but still logically that cannot be untrue. No amount of empiricals, no amount of empirical science can refute what I just said about a square and no amount of empirical science can prove there's a square circle. So that's what it means to be logically true or untrue. Now I said that proving there's a material world through material science is logically impossible. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Scientists, and, and, and the reason I'm going to all this trouble uh, is because I'm making the point that you cannot do material science in the philosophical sense without a leap of faith, without uh, making a, a claim that something is self-evident. Now, um, there is a logical fallacy or a logical boo-boo. Do you have that word, New Zealand? A boo-boo? Just want to make sure that I'm communicating. <laughs> Which is called circular reasoning. Circular reasoning. I hope you don't mind all this philosophy. I mean, we are supposed to be, you know, philosophy and religion together. And actually, if you look at what Prabhupada meant by philosophy and religion, interestingly, he didn't mean what many devotees think, uh, combine religion and the philosophy. In other words, you are religious, you worship Krishna, and you can pass a Bhakti Shastri test. That's not actually what Prabhupada meant, if you look at the quotes, which I looked up. He actually means philosophy in the sense that normal people use it. I know that normal is evil, often in the Hare Krishna movement, but, but still, in the normal sense, Philosophy means uh, the ability to reason, just the ability to reason, to understand what is logical, what is not logical. That's actually what Prabhupada meant. And so um, the flaw or the fallacy of circular reasoning or begging the question is that you're trying to prove something and you give the thing itself as evidence of itself.
Like for example, uh, well, let's give the example. Someone's trying to prove there's a real material world. And so you say, well, I can prove there's a real material world because look at I'm this is a real bottle of water. Now that's circular reasoning because you're you're saying this is a real bottle of water. Therefore, there's a real material world. By the way, don't get envious that I have Fiji water. <laughs> you know, someday you can become a guru and you can get Fiji water. So, so because this is a real bottle of water. <laughs> As I often say, you know, we belong to a religious institution. We have to have a good sense of humor. So, so if you give the argument, this is a real bottle of water, therefore this is a, there's a real material world. But it's also true that only if there's a real material world, is this a real bottle of water. So it's just going around in a circle. This is a real bottle of water, therefore there's a real material world. But only if there's a real material world, is this a real bottle of water. If the material world's all illusion, that's not a real bottle of water, it's just another illusion. Namely the illusion of a Fiji bottle of water. And so, um, so it's called circular reasoning because the premise and the conclusion are just trying to prove each other as it's going around in a circle. Instead of proceeding, I'll give you an example of an argument, a deductive argument, it means not empirical, just logical, which is not circular. And I'll, and I'll give, uh, you know, this, the standard example, it's always given in beginning philosophy classes, that you start out by saying all men are mortal. God, some chauvinist pig must have given that example, right? Oh, man. Unless women are immortal. But anyway, let's say, let's say all human beings are mortal. <laughs> all human beings are mortal. And then they say Socrates is a man or Joe Blow is a man. Therefore, Joe Blow is mortal. So that's not circular. Because if it's true that, so, you, so anyway, so em, empirical science can never prove there's a real world out there. At least they can't prove it empirically. Because logically, that would always involve circular reasoning. And so there, you, cannot give, you cannot give a logically valid empirical argument to prove there's a real world, a real empirical world. It's just not possible. It's like a square circle. Not only that, it actually gets worse. Not only that, if you say that uh, we can only accept something as objectively real if it's empirically verified. I'm sure you've heard that before. The problem is you cannot empirically verify that claim because that's not an empirical claim, it's a philosophical claim. And so, this claim, we can only accept as, objective, as objectively true that which we empirically verify. If the statement is true, it's untrue. So a statement which, if true, is untrue, is meaningless. It's a meaningless statement. It actually doesn't say anything. 
By the way, Western philosophers figured this out a long time ago, almost 100 years ago, and they, or not maybe not 100, maybe, you know, seven years, whatever it was. And so, but unfortunately, you know, the mat, you know, there's a lot of people out there running around thinking they're intellectuals who don't know these obvious points. So therefore, uh, the idea that you have to prove things empirically is philosophical nonsense. And, uh, God, there's so much I could say here, but, and we can actually prove, we can actually prove that there are true things in the universe that are not empirical, like equality or like justice, because which are not empirically verifiable. There's no way in the world you could empirically verify that we're equal, yet it's something I've been saying all over the place. Um, for example, New Zealand, which was recently voted to have the most transparent government. So if you think you've got a bad government, don't travel. So um, it's very interesting that in New Zealand and America and even Australia and many and so many other places, uh, the people of these countries rejected all empirical evidence, denied all empirical evidence and choose to set up a political system based on equality, democracy. Empirically, equality is nonsense. Metaphysically, we take it as true. So it's interesting, not only do people subjugate empirical science to metaphysical assumptions, such as we're all equal, but uh, they base their whole society on it. So actually, looking at what people do and how they form governments and how they live and the moral systems which they write into law. For example, some people who are remarkably unconscious say things like we shouldn't impose our values on others. Fine, then we shouldn't have laws against rape, murder, because those are moral values, right? If you say it's wrong to rape or murder or steal, those are moral assumptions, but since we shouldn't impose our moral values on other people, we should not have laws against murder, rape, and theft, right? Because we shouldn't impose our values. There's some really smart people out there. Anyway, so, so getting back to the point of the Roaring Mountain, and <laughs> see that? At my age, I can still remember what I was talking about. 20 minutes ago, which is um, remarkable. So getting back to the roaring mountain and accepting things, that's the point I wanted to make. That you can't do empirical science unless you claim that something is self-evidently true. You can't do empirical science unless you believe there's a real world outside your mind, which you cannot empirically prove. So why do scientists why do scientists accept, along with most people, that there's actually a real world out there outside their mind? Why do they accept? Actually, I'm just going to change my posture a little bit so that I don't get a cramp and start uh, grimacing in pain. So um, why do scientists accept that? And why do, when, why do we accept there's a real world outside our mind? For a simple reason, because the quality of our experience of the world, the nature of our experience of the world is such 
that it proves itself to us. The world proves itself to us. So that ultimately, uh, if you choose sanity over insanity, then you accept certain experiences as proving to you self-evidently that certain things are true. For example, there's a world out there that right now you are real people. I'm actually talking to you. So William James, who was one of the uh, early uh, sort of a famous psychologist, American psychologist, and also wrote a famous book on religion. I remember when we studied him in a class I took at UCLA when I was younger. Um, I remember that the, the professor said that William James, you know, made this statement, which I found really intriguing. He said, although he questioned everything and analyzed everything and, you know, like any scholar uh, was skeptical of so many things, he said, there are certain deep structures in the human mind that I am not going to tamper with. Because it's just like, for example, you can, uh, you know, I don't know, people try different foods or even people, you know, some people try drugs or whatever, but there are certain drugs that are so heavy that uh, sane people don't try them. Because you know you are going to self-destruct. And they do say curiosity killed the cat. There's a really funny cartoon I saw. There was a bunch of cats in a, in, a, in a laboratory and they all had like scientific equipment and, and they had like a blackboard, they were writing equations and they were all lying there dead, you know, curiosity killed the cat. Anyway, so the, the point is that to get into the basic, you could say philosophy of mind, we have a certain basic sanity, a certain basic awareness, consciousness. And we know certain things, like for example, there's a real world. We're talking to real people. When people speak to us in a language we understand, such as English, we know what they're, what they're saying. And if you start to pick that apart, it's like if you buy some computer and they say, if, if you unscrew this, you void your warranty. And so there's a certain basic fundamental sanity and awareness of reality and if you start taking it apart, you may actually seriously damage yourself mentally. And that's what William James meant, actually. It's like, you know, there, there's always that kind of like that dark curiosity of what it would be like to jump off a cliff or something, you know, where there's a certain little evil part of your mind that says, well, what would that be like? And so, and so there's kind of like this dark part of your mind that may say, what if you, what if I try to unravel my mind? And so, and what William James is saying, don't go there. You're going to be really sorry if you do that. And so what we have to understand as devotees of Krishna is that our basic sanity, our basic awareness, our, our understanding that certain things are self-evidently true, like there's a world out there, like those are real people, that that is a gift of God. That is actually a gift from Krishna, which we should treasure the fact that we're saying. And so getting back to the scientists, they accept there's a real world because the world proves itself to them. And the nature of self-evident proof is you can't, by definition, 
You can't prove it by something else. By the very fact that it's self-evident, that it proves itself, you can't bring something else to prove it. Just like you can't, or let's say, you can hold a candle to the sun, it's not gonna help. You're not gonna see it, the sun any better by flashing a light on it. And so when something is self-evident, you can sort of irrationally try to bring some other evidence, but it's not gonna help. It doesn't actually change anything. You really know that fact because it proved itself to you. And this is what Lord Chaitanya said about the Vedas. So for example, when we read Bhagavad Gita, uh, the Bhagavad Gita is self-revelatory, to use a fancy word, which if you go home and practice, you can pronounce someday. The Bhagavad Gita is actually self-revelatory. In other words, it, it actually, as you read it, it reveals itself as true as you read it. And even some material things do that. Like, let's say you read a solution to a math problem. And as you read it, you see that it's true. And so the Bhagavad Gita, when we read Bhagavad Gita in the right consciousness, uh, we, we are not simply understanding what the words mean. We are actually seeing that it's true. Not merely believing, we're actually seeing it. And the same happens when we chant Hare Krishna. So what I mean to say here is that structurally, in terms of epistemological structure, I can use a fancy word that makes me feel like I didn't waste my money going to college. So if, if we think about epistemological structure, then as devotees of Krishna, we are doing exactly the same thing as any scientist. We are building knowledge on a self-evident foundation. We have a self-evident experience which we cannot rationally deny that Krishna is God and that the Bhagavad Gita is actually the voice of Krishna. So if we deny that, we're being irrational. So um, both in empirical science and in Krishna consciousness, we start with an epistemological foundation, which is a self-evident experience, and we build on that. So, the Roaring Mountain. Um, I personally have never heard a mountain roar, I have to admit, even though I'm a bona fide guru. <laughs> I've never heard a mountain roar. Um, however, uh, it's not logically impossible. A roaring mountain is not a square circle. If you know what the word mountain means and what the word roar means, to say that a mountain roared is not, doesn't, it's not logically impossible. It's not linguistically contradictory. And since, you know, almost all the things in the universe I've never experienced, I mean, think about it. I mean, of all the things that are taking place, let's say, in this room, you are experiencing a, a, an infinitesimal fraction. I mean, all the molecular atomic reactions going on, or if you walk outside the room, all the different creatures, all the lives that are being lived, you know, the secret lives of insects. Um, 
And, and so if you, and if you think beyond this form, if you think of the universe, I mean, we, infinitesimal means like infinitely small. We actually know literally an infinitesimal percentage of all the things that are true. And even of all the important events that are going on right now in the universe. And so, um, so therefore, as I was saying before, we have no choice. We have to hear from authority. And so people sometimes assume because I'm kind of, I, I sort of tilt on the rational side. People sometimes think, oh, so you don't believe in roaring mountains, do you? No, I do, I do accept they're possible precisely because I'm rational. Well, actually that was pretentious. I try to be rational in the sense that it's logically possible that a mountain can roar and I have no reason to think that there isn't one that roars. I've never experienced it. I mean, you know, maybe it's like a dog whistle, we can't hear it, but um, if there are roaring mountains, I would tend to think they're not on this planet. But um, could there be somewhere in the universe roaring mountains? Like, why not? Not only that, if God did not do things like appear as a boar or make mountains at roar, he would be kind of boring. You know, like you might worship him, but you wouldn't necessarily invite him to your parties. So, I mean, to me, a God that doesn't do really amazing, even kooky things, like, I mean, appearing as a boar, it is kind of, you know, appearing as a, you know, appearing as, 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 as a cosmic tortoise because you want your back scratched. I mean, what it shows is that Krishna in his own perfect way can be hilarious and silly and, and that's what makes him so attractive. I mean, if you think about it, uh, when's the last, I mean, I hate to say this, I don't mean to be disrespectful to other religions, but I mean, like these typical gods that we hear about, I mean, when's the last time they ever cracked a good joke? <laughs> Can you imagine that, a Supreme Lord that doesn't even have a sense of humor? So, I mean, it's not that the God other religions are worshiping is false. I'm not getting into the toxic, crazy, uh, uh, you know, discourse of false gods and false religions, and dead God. I mean, that's not, I'm not going into that toxic realm. I'm simply saying that there are more and less complete conceptions of God. And so a God with no sense of humor, or frankly, a sannyasi with no sense of humor, is kind of a, ooh. I mean, we should, we should all be, first of all, we need to all be able to laugh at ourselves. Prabhupada, by the way, had a great sense of humor. I mean, sometimes he told me jokes. And uh, he, was, he, had a, he had an amazing sense of humor. So, and so does Krishna. So anyway, um, so yeah, why not a roaring mountain? I mean, if I was, if I ran the zoo, I might make one myself, just because it's such a funny thing to do. <laughs> so again, um, to say that God is just kind of like this humorless engineer that just engineers the universe with no humor, no art, is just, to me, is like extremely irrational and unattractive. So anyway, so much Roaring Mountains. Uh, any questions? Actually, it'd be a great toy, you know, the nice Krishna conscious toy for our kids, you know, Roaring Mountains, you wind it up. 
You put winding up. Oh, I just dated myself. They don't wind up things anymore. They're like, okay, you push a button and the mountain roars. <laughs> so, any questions? No questions. I can see you know your rational self-interest, and it's breakfast time. So, Prabhupada Kijoy. Thank you all for listening out there. <laughs>